Welcome back. This is a brand new episode of Tips with Salsa. Talk, tips, and tales from the nonprofit community. I'm Ben Lyon with Salsa Labs, and thanks for checking in. On today's episode, Salsa's Craig Grella sits down with Colin Delaney, creator of ePolitics.com and author of three go-to books on the nuts and bolts of political campaigns and digital organizing. Craig and Colin dive into the practical approaches to political advocacy, how nonprofits can create excitement on social media, and the importance of social media relationships. They'll discuss effective list building, deep organizing techniques, steps to planning an effective advocacy campaign, and more. Let's listen in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Tips with Salsa podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing digital advocacy and digital strategy, and we are joined by Colin Delaney. He's the author of three books that cover really the nuts and bolts of political campaigns and digital organizing. He's also the creator of ePolitics.com, which is a popular website about digital strategy for politics and advocacy. He's a former staffer in the Texas legislature and was online communications director at the National Environmental Trust and the National Women's Law Center. Welcome, Colin, to our podcast. Hey, Craig. It's great to be with you today. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, we're very happy to have you as a guest, Colin. Um, and I, I have to say, before we get started, um, I've been a fan of your writing for, for quite a long time. I've read your books. Um, I've implemented a lot of the, the techniques you have in your books in different campaigns and, and even in some of the writing that we, we help other nonprofits uh, implement as well. And I think really... Your website and a lot of your writing, uh, the term nuts and bolts really is a good description because it's not the the glittery, you know, uh, theory type of stuff. You really dig in and you really get to the heart of what people need to do, the very practical, metric-related, outcome-based type of stuff. Well, thanks, man. That is... Yeah, that's the goal. I mean, it's written for um, an audience of practitioners. I do have to point out it is sadly neglected right now. As business heated up this spring, I had to drop the writing for a bit, but that'll start up soon. And I do also write a column uh, monthly for campaignsandelections.com. And uh, even if you're in the advocacy world, that's a great site to check out, too. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, you know, I got started in the Texas legislature. I think that has informed, you know, my very practical approach to political advocacy. And I think, um, you know, back in the day, you used to see a lot of that kind of glittering coverage of digital politics. Um, a lot of reporters kind of got snowed by, uh, you know, companies touting their new revolutionary products that didn't turn out to be much sometimes. Nowadays, I think the coverage is a whole lot better and it is more nuts and bolts. And I think that's a positive development for the field. I also think it's it's what groups are really looking for, right? Because advocacy is such a broad topic. And, and especially now with uh, all the different ways that we can reach our elected officials or we can reach different groups that are making decisions on, on things that we're trying to change or advocate for, um, it, it can sometimes even be tougher with all of the digital media at our fingertips. It's, it's hard to focus. There's so much noise out there. Um, so, so having that nuts and bolts guides and, and your book is really a, 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 a 101 kind of how to, uh, really put together digital campaigns, which, which I've always appreciated. And it changes every year because the field changes every year. Right. And that's, you know, 
a lot of the received wisdom that still gets handed out at trainings and conferences, you know, might be based on something that was true two, three, four years ago, but no longer is. So, um, you know, I think that is one of the hardest things is to get information that is actually current. Yeah. And, and it does. And, and, Techniques may not change. You know, there's always going to be letters and, you know, uh, phone calls to sure. uh, right. our elected officials. But I, I think sometimes uh, how to do those things and best practices in those things, which, you know, your website uh, gives are great. So let's let's maybe jump into one of those. Um, uh, over the years, we've seen social media just blow up as an advocacy tool. And it's something that you cover in detail on your site and uh, certainly in, in your books. And uh, a lot of campaigns have used it with various levels of success and some without any success at all. Um, so, you know, maybe talk about yeah, a couple things that nonprofits can do if they're in the advocacy space. What are some things they could do on social media, maybe to get people fired up about their campaigns or their, their advocacy campaign, that kind of thing? Yeah. Well, first question is, where are your potential advocates online, right? Are they on Facebook? Are they on Instagram? Are they on Twitter, right? Um, if you don't know where your audience lives, where they spend the bulk of their digital time, then um, you're going to have a much harder time mobilizing them. I'll give a tiny example. I was working with a client the uh, other week, an environmental group that was doing a, a diversity webinar about diverse, you know, having diverse uh, visitors to uh, America's parks, right? Um, they were trying to promote this event out to uh, an African-American audience in a particular area. Um, we didn't put uh, an age limit on it, even though we were trying to get uh, more younger folks into the organization. 95% um, of the responses on Facebook came from people over 65, right? When we switched the ads to serve to people under 50, all of a sudden, the vast majority of them were coming from Instagram right? Two-thirds from 90% Facebook to two-thirds Instagram. So first, understanding where the audience, and particularly the part of the audience that you're trying to mobilize, spends their time. It's a really important step. And then, you know, to me, everything online comes down to two basic elements, content and relationships. And you build relationships with your advocates. Um, you know, digital advocacy in, in, in a real sense is managing relationships on a large scale, right? And then you have the content that both builds that relationship, it builds their connection to your organization, your campaign, and your issues. And then it mobilizes them to actually do the work, right? But, um, you know, with social media, you're swimming in a very, very crowded ocean. So um, I see groups all the time that just put something up on Facebook and expect something to happen in the real world, right? And instead, you've got to be thinking about how to cut through the clutter. And there are so many different strategies we can go to on, on that. But I think the biggest problem with social, you know, besides the algorithms themselves that make it hard to communicate, but the, the, the deeper problem is the sheer volume of information we're, we're putting out as a species all the time. Yeah, you know, it's funny you mention content and relationships, right? Because sometimes content is, is tough to understand what to put together. Um, mm -hmm. but, right. but 
you you can kind of figure that out. Uh, editorial calendars and and planning, having an understanding of not necessarily what you want to put out, but like you said, what your audience wants, because that's what's going to make them kind of sit up and take notice, make your content kind of rise above the din, so to say. Mm-hmm. But the relationships I found are really important because uh, if all you're doing is talking at people and you're not engaging and you're not uh, encouraging those relationships, then it's really just a one-way conversation, which of course is is uh, really tough for any kind of advocacy. <laughs> well, you can do it though. I mean, when you're managing an email list, it's functionally a one-way conversation, and you can find ways to um, draw people in. You know, online discussions, webinars, whatever it is. But um, you know, you are essentially broadcasting. But but even then, you know, uh, people's People act in a political way um, around issues because they have an emotional connection. They have an emotional response to, right? So people have an emotional reaction when they see your email. You don't want that reaction to be dread, like, oh, another message from Bob. Yeah, right. Um, So you want that to be, oh, here's an opportunity for me to do something good in the world and feel good about myself in the process, right? That you really are, you're, you're giving them something that they want to do. If you've done your job, right, you've done your communication job, laid the groundwork, you're giving them something that they really want to do. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about having that relationship or, or building relationships. And, and maybe we'll, if, if you could speak a little bit about uh, maybe list building, whether it's social or email, you know, some of the tactics that you've seen uh, be successful from organizing groups and advocacy groups that you've worked with both on social and maybe a couple tips for some email list building too. Right. Well, to me, ultimately, um, you know, list building is all sort of combined, right? And it's the relationship more than the channel. Um, you know, the most common routes um, I see these days um, Facebook lead generation ads are highly targetable, and you know, depending on how well you optimize the content, they can be pretty cost competitive, right? Compared to your other ways of getting new supporters, uh, some people buy lists. Generally, a terrible idea, although there are some ways in which you can make them usable. But um, uh, more often, you know, if you're not doing Facebook ads, you're doing um, a paid petition on a site like Care2. Again, very predictable financially, but um, if you're trying to build support in, say, rural Mississippi or outside liberal enclaves in general, you're going to have a harder time. Um, and also, their site has a dem- just like Facebook has a demographic bias. Their site has a demographic bias as well. Typically, uh, older uh, female and white. So again, if you're trying to diversify your audience, it's harder uh, on a petition site. Um, one option that groups seem to, uh, a lot of groups are, are starting to embrace is this idea of a list, that we call it a list swap, but it's not like you're actually handing over a database. It's more uh, often two groups are, say, doing a joint action and promoting it out to both of their lists, and anyone who takes the action joins both lists. But, um, you know, as soon as you get somebody uh, following you on social media, for instance, I want to get them on email as fast as I can, right? Because just in practice, email has such a higher response rate Uh, and vice versa. If they're on my email program, I want to get them over following me on uh, Facebook or Instagram 
because I can communicate with them more often through Facebook and Instagram without running them off. So sort of like a, almost like a cross pollinization where you've got messages sure. back, yeah, very good way to think. Yeah, messages back and forth, maybe the day to day in the social media channels where it can be much more of a rapid fire response. Uh, and then the bigger initiatives, which you have a little bit more room to to expand on ideas on on email and then maybe your calls to action and engagement that way, too, which is great. Great. And of course, there, yeah, you can connect the two, of course via, you know, a Facebook custom audience. You can upload your own email list. And, you know, pro tip, if you really want to get something shared on Facebook, send an email to your list with a one-click share link. I used to watch for Facebook posts that, from uh, uh, advocacy organizations that had way more shares than they had likes, because normally it's the other way around, right? Normally more people like a post than share it. So if something had way more shares than likes, that suggested to me that they had promoted it via email or text. Interesting. Great. Let's chat maybe for a moment about some of the uh, deep organizing techniques. I know you've, you've written about this in your book and you mentioned it on your website as well. Um, sort of a, a model uh, for, for long-term persuasion, which, you know, in, in the advocacy space, we measure success in, especially in legislative races, uh, sometimes in years, right? Uh, you're, you're not. Yes, often. Right, sometimes exactly. You're not going to have, you know, maybe you're, you're trying to affect uh, mission or vision of a corporate CEO. That could take days or even hours with the right advocacy. But in the world of legislative uh, campaigns, it could be much longer. And I think the idea of long-term persuasion and, and persistent field organizing really uh, get to the heart of that type of, of organizing and maybe, you know, talk for a moment about, about that concept of deep organizing. Sure. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it got a lot of attention back in January, especially, um, because of the democratic victory in the two center races there in the runoffs. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams' organization got uh, a good share of the attention, although she herself was very quick to say that her work was just a part of like a whole puzzle. She was just one piece of a big old puzzle, right? There were groups that were, for instance, organizing domestic workers starting 10 or 12 years ago, domestic workers in Georgia. There were a lot of other groups that were working to organize and mobilize very, very specific, um, you know, segments of the population that are often completely ignored. So um, a big part of um, deep organizing is time commitment right? It's spending the time to get to know people in a community and then building the capacity in that community, like helping to train people. And, you know, often people just need to be introduced to the concept, right, that they can make a difference. Because especially, you know, if you're in a low-wage job, you know, the deck, has been, the deck has been stacked against you so many times, right, that people get this almost this learned helplessness. You see that with a lot of minority voters in places like the U.S. South, right, where they're kind of fatalistic sometimes about voting rights because they've been taken away from them so many times, right? And so uh, one of the goals of deep organizing, I think, is to help people push back that, past that, and realize that through their own work, they can begin to change their community. The field is the most important component, and, and that includes both, uh, you know, directed organizing by a field organizer, volunteer or paid, um, but also self-organizing. So, you know, 
advocacy tools that allow supporters to take the initiative, build their own networks, that kind of thing. But I think like if you're really gonna, you know, do sustained long-term outreach, especially out in Trump country, some kind of advertising component, if you can afford it, should be a piece of it too. Simply, you know, I grew up in, in rural Bible Belt, East Texas. No democratic or liberal idea is gonna survive Fox News out there. You are never, if you're, especially if you're a white person, you are never going to encounter a democratic idea in its natural state. You're only gonna get the distorted version. So, um, you know, to create almost the idea space for organizing, some kind of messaging ought to be a part of the campaign as well. So when we talk, when we talk about putting together tactics for organizing and planning, we, we sort of frame it. We actually just did a webinar uh, on this yesterday. It's, it's on the Salsa website about the steps to planning an advocacy campaign. We talk about choosing your target and then finding the people who influence your target and then helping to uh, understanding who the influences are so that you could build your team and then craft a message. When we talk about the idea of deep organizing and really uh, going into an area, like you mentioned, where there is no capacity to pass an idea or a bill that you're trying to get passed. Um, what are maybe some of those steps that groups can can do to start building capacity? Maybe it's going to be a multi-year advocacy campaign where they can't scream and yell at their senator. It's just not going to happen. They have to do a few things first to even start to build that capacity before their campaign really gets up and running. Maybe touch uh, on a little, a few of those things that campaigns can do or even think about in the planning phase to, to, to kind of spark that type of campaign. Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think one of the most important things is to understand your own capacities as an organization, um, to understand the ground that you're fighting on, to understand the, the audiences that you're trying to reach, the people who do have the chance to influence policy, that it's like you need to almost conduct an internal audit. Like I've worked in organizations that were um, very policy oriented, but weren't very grassroots oriented, right? So they would produce fantastic content, but not necessarily have very many people out in the world see it. So what they could do, though, was to form coalitions with organizations that did have the grassroots, right? So that, you know, one group over here is producing this fantastic policy analysis. This other group, you know, uh, across the country, perhaps, is using that to mobilize workers, you know, in a local fight. So um, part of it is understanding what you're good at, what you're capable of doing, identifying the gaps that you need to fill and figuring out how to fill them, but being realistic about what you can do, right? If you're a three-person nonprofit working on a national issue, you're not going to have a national field campaign, right? So then you start to think about, well, based on who we are, who can we reach that might be able to make a difference, right? So in that case, you might start reaching out to activists on Twitter, right? People who are already prominent voices and influencers. You might identify specific communities, you know, literal geographic communities that you want to concentrate on. Like, oh, we know there's going to be, you know, uh, this is going to be an issue in XYZ states uh, next year. So, you know, 
if we are active, that's a chance for us to grow our capacity in that state. And you may lose this year and lose next year and lose the year after, but you want to keep, you know, every with every fight, you want to leave behind this nucleus of people who are ready to keep working. Right. Good tips. Um, you and I have spoken several times about tools that organizations can use. And I think this kind of builds on what you're mentioning about doing an internal audit and understanding what you can affect and trying to work with other groups if you're short on relationships or short on staff or money or resources. And um, one of the things I've always found interesting is certainly with the the increasing of technology, <clears throat> sort of this democratization of of the the ability for for people to organize massive groups. I mean, we've seen it in previous presidential campaigns, and I know you write about this as well. But um, what I find interesting is tools like Salsa that have things like petitions and legislator lookups and all these different targeted actions that you can use. And um, but. In terms of what people expect, in terms of being part of the process, that's changed itself, right? Talk maybe a little bit about the changing of the advocacy process, and, and then maybe we talk a little bit about some of the tools that have become popular to allow people to be maybe peek behind the curtain. Yeah, it's a great, great question, and, you know, a pet, uh, uh, a sort of a pet friend of mine. I've been watching it for a long time. You know, think back to when I got started in politics in the 90s, right? Citizens weren't really expected to take much of an active role in the process. Their their job was to consume our television commercials and vote accordingly, right? Um, it was, to me, it was, uh, you know, you move on, captured a little bit of this in the late 90s, you know, with its opposition to the Clinton impeachment, they started to build their list. Um, but it, you know, and then after the um, Florida debacle in 2000 with George Bush being appointed president, right, a lot of people on the left were very much fired up and they were looking for something to do. And then in the run up to the Iraq war, you know, the liberal blogosphere gave them a place to go and gave them a place to express themselves. And since then, you know, we've only seen this trend accelerate and it's global, right? I mean, there were George Floyd protests in Nigeria. Uh -huh about a local, uh, about a Nigerian police unit that was, you know, uh, shooting people, oppressing people. Um, so, you know, people are going to use the tools. There are a lot of specialized tools, of course, but generally people are going to use the tools that they use in their everyday lives, right? So you see, you know, around the world, you know, everywhere from the streets of D.C. last June to like Hong Kong, you saw people using encrypted messaging apps. Um, you saw, you know, certainly back channel, Facebook, discussion groups, um, people, you know, taking an instant on the ground, right? 30 seconds, shooting a video, putting it on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and having it go global, potentially, right? The Tunisian revolution, from what I understand, back in 2012, the one of the Arab Spring revolutions that turned out, you know, fairly well, um, started because one guy uh, killed himself in protest against police corruption. He was, you know, being abused in the market. And, you know, a fairly small cadre of activists and bloggers uh, and Twitter users in Tunisia spread that around the world. And within hours, those clips uh, might be up on Al Jazeera and reaching a much broader audience. Uh, and yeah, I think that, that people are 
seeing that the deck is stacked against them around the world, they're getting very frustrated and digital tools give them something to do about it. So for us as nonprofit communicators, it's understanding this reality that the activists may be ahead of us sometimes, you know, especially if we're slower moving uh, old line nonprofit, um, but that people are going to go ahead and grab whatever is at hand, whatever they're used to using. And then, you know, again, the encrypted apps, that's not something most of us use day to day, but um, they are, you know, easy to download, easy to install and pretty secure. Although uh, make sure the one you're using is not actually run by the FBI. <laughs> You're making reference, of course, to uh, the recent news that the FBI had created uh, an encrypted cell phone company, encrypted messaging service that was used that that criminals were actually using and and talking about their day-to-day business without uh, using code. They just thought they were on a secure app and, you know, the app happened to be owned by the FBI. And I think it was something like 16 other... um, international organizations, Australia, Europol, all over the place. What, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting time in the world of technology, certainly. certainly that. It's, like a, it's like a technological honey trap. You're enticing them into a place they, they, they really want to go. <laughs> it's, it's funny you mention uh, that activists sometimes move faster than the organization themselves. And I think as the organization gets bigger, that certainly becomes the case where you have maybe several levels of bureaucracy. And no matter how nimble you are, the when your organization gets bigger, the types of advocacy campaigns you work on get bigger. And it requires more planning. And maybe sometimes that can be in conflict with uh, using a really simple or quick messaging service to organize people on the ground. Um, you know, what are, what are some of the, you know, you mentioned SMS and things like that. I mean, what are some of the tools that you've seen uh, activists and advocates be successful with in some of their campaigns? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, you see a lot of things springing up, um, you know, peer-to-peer texting, you know, so that one volunteer can text many people on behalf of a campaign or one staffer. Um, you know, that really took a, you know, got, really got started in 2016 and then it's taken off in a big way. Of course, it's one regulatory decision away from going, you know, from disappearing. But while we have it, um, uh, it can be a powerful way to, for a, a scrappy organization to, you know, get the message out to a lot of people. Um, uh, you're seeing a lot of, um, and it can also be used in more subtle ways, too. Like a, uh, there's an activist named, a very smart man named Ray McKesson. I've been lucky enough to be on panels with a couple of times at conferences. Uh, when he was running for ma- long shot bid for mayor in Baltimore, he was using the peer-to-peer app Hustle to uh, stay in touch with his donors. He would send a group text to all of his donors and then, um, or, you know, send the peer-to-peer, you know, click, 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 click to send a hundred times to his donors. And that would start conversations with them. So he was using what most of us, you know, most people use a broadcast app. He was using it as a way to build relationships. But um, and speaking of relationships, you know, there's a whole new world of tools that are lumped under the phrase relational organizing. And the the basic idea behind this is that uh, an advocacy message or a political message is going to be best received when it's delivered by somebody that the target already knows, right? 
So one common way these tools work is, uh, say, if, you know, your, uh, app, your volunteer downloads an app, you have a list of priority voters you're trying to contact. The app tries to match the voters with the contacts in that person's phone. And if there appears to be a match, then the app uh, asks the volunteer to contact you know, that priority uh, voter. So, um, I mean, there are many other applications, and some of them are, are purely, you know, internal, uh, internal organizing rather than dealing with, you know, rather than spreading the word or building support. But um, uh, the thing is that they're kind of shaking out of the market, right? Some of the approaches won't work. Some of them will. Um, most of them promise, you know, a few percent increase in, in effectiveness. And that may not sound like much. But when I talk to really experienced field people, they will, field organizers, they will tell me that even the best field campaign will only make two, three, four percent difference in, say, voter turnout, right? But in a close election, that's critical. So if you can change that from three percent to five percent, that may, might be the margin of victory. And an advocacy campaign is, is a little less diffuse, right? Because, or a little more diffuse, because you know, you're not measuring votes, you're measuring pressure, right? Pressure on decision makers. But um, again, you know, the relational tools will, at least in theory, um, make all of your contacts more effective because you're working through existing social webs. Um, those are two of the big ones. But, you know, nothing replaces a face-to-face -face conversation, right? Uh, all of these digital tools, you know, especially in the field world, the digital tools either supplement or enhance a real-world relationship. Yeah, and I've, I've, I, I think that's a, a great point. And I found that to be true as well, where we talk about nothing replaces a handshake or a conversation at a doorstep. And when we talk to nonprofits, especially those, one of the first things we we like to do is to have an understanding of, hey, what does success mean? And being able to, you know, in an advocacy campaign, maybe that means winning an election or getting a bill passed, but just trying to track some of those metrics and, and bring that back to something where you can gauge if you're effective and what method has been the most effective for you. Um, you know, we like to, whether you're measuring that in Excel or you put it in a CRM, um, tracking the activities with people, understanding who we've reached out to, when we've reached out to them. Is phone call more effective than SMS? Is a peer-to-peer -peer, uh, campaign and, and guidance more effective than, say, doing a petition? Stuff like that. So um, using those tools have been helpful. And I, I think digital tools can be effective that way where they help inform your strategy. But at some point, you know, the rubber needs to hit the road or the shoe leather needs to hit the road and, and you need to have face-to-face uh, -face conversations, which, which has been tough, uh, certainly in a pandemic when we have kind of, you know, gone away from those, those in-person meetings. Uh, digital tools have been extremely helpful. Yeah. And talking about the measuring, um, you know, one problem that I think is just really, really hard to avoid in the, in the nonprofit ad advocacy space is that so often our end goals, you know, we're making incremental progress toward our end goals, right? You know, if like if you're fighting, if you were fighting for universal health care in the 1950s, you were going to have to wait a long time, right? So, yeah. So what we end up with often are process measurements rather than outcome measurements. You know, we sent X number of emails to Congress. 
we generated, you know, Y number of phone calls to Congress. We had, you know, our, our issue experts made five personal visits to the Hill. Um, we got 100 citizen activists to come on our, our, our virtual lobby day or something like that. Um, because, you know, the, the outcome process, the passage of the bill, uh, you know, the big markers like that come along so rarely. And I, I just think it's it's hard to get around and it can be very frustrating. You're like, OK, we're doing all these things, but what is the real good it's doing in the world? You know, and uh, 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 I don't have an easy answer to that. Right. Um, but, you know, to the extent that people can, you know, I would would would, you know, both focus on, you know, the mechanical. We are delivering X, Y, Z. We are optimizing, you know, our content so that, you know, 12% of the recipients act rather than 8%, right? That kind of thing. But um, to, to, to try not to lose sight of the long goals. Unfortunately, you know, all too often for some organizations, it becomes grant chasing, right? Our goal is whatever our last funder told us our goal was. And then after next year's round of funding, our goal will be what the new funders want, Right. And uh, again, for staff, that can be demoralizing, you know, because uh, you don't necessarily feel like you're advancing towards something real. But that's an organization, you know, those are questions to be handled at a leadership level. You know, uh, it's just hard for people to get their head out of the cockpit and look around sometimes. See the forest through the trees. Absolutely. <laughs> well, burn, tell you know, if you burn the forest down, you don't have to worry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's let's hope there are no advocacy groups out there whose goal is to burn the forest down. Let's let's hope that we haven't just given them advice on how to do it. How <clears throat> tell tell us tell us uh, a little bit about um, tell us a little bit about your books and and where people can find them and 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 um, you know again I've I've read them all I really appreciate them and enjoy them and I think some of our listeners will will find the advice in the books especially on on digital advocacy and strategy very helpful so maybe tell us a little bit about uh, what's out there and where they could find them. Yeah, well, the old one though there was a, I put out an online politics 101 way back when I launched ePolitics in 2006 because I didn't want it to be just a blog I wanted it to have some kind of in-depth content. And it gradually that migrated into an ebook and then evolved into the current version, which is how to use the internet to change the world and win elections. And these days I'm updating it every year. You can download it at epolitics.com. It's also in the uh, Kindle store for, uh, or the Amazon store for Kindle readers. It only exists as an ebook, uh, partly because it is chock full of links to news articles, case studies, that kind of thing. But yeah, the current version, and as a PDF, it's about 140 pages, and uh, you know it starts out with with big trends, then strategy and planning, and then gets down into the mechanics of of okay, let's talk list building strategies, let's talk social media advertising, let's talk programmatic video advertising, right? Let's talk targeting options, um, staffing, budget, logistics, uh, tech enabled field. Um, it has it has grown. It is basically it has forced me to know a little bit about just about everything that's going on out there in the digital advocacy space, um, which I, I feel very lucky that I've got this like like distant you know uh, high perspective right that I it helps me see how the pieces can interrelate. Um, and and if I have any advice for for younger digital advocates, younger digital staffers, 
is try to learn to do as many things as you can, right? I, I've seen so many folks who have run a Facebook page and have decided that they are social media experts because they have run a Facebook page, right? Where there is a whole lot more to digital advocacy. The fact that I can code HTML has saved my butt more times than I can think of, even in recent years. So, you know, try to try to get you know, the, those of us that started out early had the had the advantage of having to do everything, right? And there wasn't weren't many different things to do back in the day. So as new ones came along, we could learn, you know, we could learn YouTube strategy. We could learn Facebook strategy. We could learn Instagram strategy as these things became popular. Where somebody starting out, yeah, they can see that whole bewildering array. But um, yeah, I would, you know, there's so many great conferences out there. Um, I know Salsa uh, used to have a user conference. I assume they still do, um, although pandemic interrupted. Um, the, uh, but there's Netroots Nation, Organizing 2.0, any of the campaigns and election events, and then just lots of the, the Digital Strategy Summit was a month ago. And uh, more and more of these things, because of the virtual angle, are posting the recordings afterwards. So even if you can't make it to a session, you can still learn. And that's exactly what we've done. It's also, we, we do a lot of webinars. Uh, we usually do at least one, sometimes two webinars a week. And this podcast has, has been educating people too with, you know, having guests like yourself and, you know, experts in different fields. So it's been another medium that we've been able to use to reach people and pass on advice that, that helps them in their everyday work, which is, which is great. So. Yeah. And, and it's so frustrating. Like, you know, I talked, we, we, like we in DC who do these things, right, and go to the conferences, have had a chance to learn so much over the years. And it just doesn't filter out to the people who really need it very often. I was talking to a group yesterday or day before yesterday that's you know, trying to recruit uh, 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 people in their 20s to basically trying to build minority representation in tech by creating a training track for people. And, you know, they were making like 101 level mistakes in their, uh, the way they were trying to convert, you know, they had a list of people who were interested, the ways they were trying to convert them. So, you know, uh, uh, but, but, you know, what was frustrating is they shouldn't have to make those mistakes, right? They should be able to just go, oh, we're going to do this campaign, this kind of campaign. Let's go look at what the best practices are. Um, so, uh, I, you know, to me, it's like incumbent on those of us who've been doing this a long time to help folks who are just starting out not have to repeat the same mistakes that we made. <laughs> Don't do what I do. Just do what I say. <laughs> it's, it's, it's been great having you as a guest, Colin, on the podcast. We appreciate your time and, and your advice, uh, certainly your expertise in the advocacy and, and political space on, on the digital side. Uh, for those who want to get more information uh, about Colin and his tips in the political and advocacy space, certainly the digital political and advocacy space, you could visit epolitics.com. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of the podcast, and we will see you again soon. Well, that's going to wrap up another episode. If you'd like to learn more about Colin Delaney, check out epolitics.com or find him on Twitter at, at epolitics. And as always, if you'd like to learn a little more about Salsa, 
and how we are helping clients engage and change the world with smart engagement tools, visit us at salsalabs.com. We'll see you next time on Tips with Salsa.